Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Well, I'm so pleased to have a dear friend and colleague. Today, we're happy to have Mr. Ludo Pius out of Belgium, if you will, who is the founder and chairman of Areopa as our in-studio guest. Ludo, welcome to the program. Happy to be there, Daryl. I'm really looking forward to our audience to learn so much about what Areopa is doing with intellectual capital. But before we jump into our uh, list of questions here, tell us how it all got started. Well, let me start with by saying where I came from. Um, I'm actually, uh, I have a master in, in psychology and economy, right? And the reason I have two masters is that I didn't know what to choose. So I did both of them. So that is uh, always, and it, apparently later on, it has been an interesting choice that I made. First job that I ever did was General Motors. I was going to teach managers how to be good leaders without being a leader myself. So I said, well, that's interesting. Uh, you can teach the people even if you don't know how to do it yourself. But later on, I learned that there are three categories of people where I always said, uh, if you can't do it, teach it. And if you can't teach it, write a book about it. So, and that is something that <laughs> I always stayed with me and uh, that experience. Uh, from General Motors, I went to Hewlett Packard, uh, HP. I was there uh, first in Belgium, uh, responsible for training and development uh, of a sales unit of Hewlett Packard with uh, 400 people there, most of them sales reps and system engineers, learned the technology business. Um, but I was then responsible for organizational development. That was the era uh, where everybody was talking about uh, changing organizations to process-driven organizations and stuff like that. And then I was uh, appointed uh, three years later to do that same work on European level. And then after three years, I was uh, doing that on worldwide level from uh, Silicon Valley. So I had my office uh, in Silicon Valley, was the vice president of organization development at that time reporting to John Young. So it's a long time ago. Um, and uh, it was a very interesting experience, especially when that time Bill and Dave were still alive and they were still running around in the corridors where I had my office. Those guys learned me a lot about uh, what kind of uh, culture you should create in an organization in order to make it uh, flourishing and be big in terms of knowledge driven. It's a pity when I saw my HP ex guys and experiences and companies going to hell due to the mismanagement of, uh, of mergers and acquisitions like uh, 75 other percent of the M&As who are going wrong. Well, HP bought Compaq and, and of course, you know what happened the guys, the sales reps shooting out of the hips, uh, then matching that with uh, engineers who wanted to develop the last new thing that could be, uh, could be used. But the reason that I left HP was not that. The reason that I left HP was that they offered me my next job because HP had at that time um, the concept or actually the, the philosophy that you can do a job for three years, first year to learn, second year to do, third year to grow out of the job. And my next job would have been general manager in Iceland. In Iceland, uh, in Europe, you know, it's part of Denmark. And um, so in that moment, um, I said, but Iceland, Jesus Christ, that's, uh, what did I do wrong? It's Siberia over there, right? 
and HP was small. There was only a hundred people working there, um, especially in the fish industry. And uh, my boss said, yeah, but you need to learn a little bit more in the, in the line business. And that's the reason why we would choose you to go and do that. I said, no, 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 I don't want to do it. I want to stay in my line of business, which I do already for nine years nearly that. Uh, and I became pretty good in all that and was teaching already in the big business schools, the experience from uh, HP, in INSEAD, in Harvard, in IMD, and, you know, and I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. Um, don't you have another job for me? Yeah, you can be sales manager in Italy. And I say, what is that? Selling computers to the mafia? Come on, <laughs> you must be joking. Yeah, no, 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 no. And I said, no, no, you know what? I will quit. I will start my own company and you can hire me if you need me. Right. So that was a decision that I took without thinking very well because I thought at that time naively uh, when I have the background of HP um, uh, under my belt, that the people would be queuing in front of my door to ask for consultancy services and stuff like that. Uh, it didn't happen. That was the first lesson of, uh, the, of entrepreneurship that you have to get. Once you don't belong to a big name anymore, nobody knows you anymore. And when I went back to Belgium, yeah, I didn't even know my neighbors because I was gone there for a very long time. So I had to start from scratch. And the second experience I had was when I finally found a potential customer, then I wrote down my position plan that I had with HP. And then I said, but how much should I ask the guy for my consultancy services? And I wrote down 10% of what I earned with Hewlett Packard. And the guy said, are you crazy? We are not going to pay for that. And there I learned another important thing is that I always said, well, I was the product myself. Yeah, all my knowledge I had was tacit. It means it's in my head. It doesn't belong to somebody else. So I could never sell that knowledge for a lot of money. I had to go back. And so I said, I'm going to write everything down that I know. At that time, it was from change management, of course. Um, and we had the very good programs that we developed at that time in HP for doing that. Um, and I said, well, uh, I'm going to write it down and then I teach others and then we can sell them cheaper, right? So, and that was what I did. And there, it was 1987 at the time. Uh, that's when our Yopa started. And uh, we started, of course, with this kind of uh, exercises, implementations of large change management projects. That's what the first thing I ever did. Um, and I learned something else in HP. And the thing that I learned there was uh, you can you see that so many uh, six sigma and all these kind of, of change projects and programs there are they are all teaching managers and consultants uh, the models and methodologies and tools but i learned something if you don't talk money nobody listens to you because i always try to to analyze if i teach uh, a manager in hp at that time a model after a week he forgot it already what it was but he didn't forget what uh, the most important part was more revenue, less costs, yeah? And money is always there. And if you are not able to, to base all your things that you do on uh, saving costs or creating more value, it will never fly, right? So in that sense, that was the first part of, uh, uh, of Ariopa. Um, that was 1987. So at that time, it go, went very fast. Uh, after three years time, we were already more than 200 people. 
uh, we went to uh, even Southeast Asia, which was a very big jump. We went not to there where everybody went to, to Singapore and Hong Kong, where I knew quite a lot of people. But um, what I also did was I, I chose to go to Thailand. And then everybody said, yeah, but you choose Thailand because the ladies are nice there and the food is good and that kind of stuff. But what the, the most of the people didn't know is that the CIA books that exist on, on the internet make analysis from all the countries. And I found out that the Southeast Asian country, Thailand, 80% uh, of their economy was in the hands of 40 families. So I went to our ambassador over there and I asked him, can you do me a favor? Yeah, they have to, the Belgium ambassadors have to help business people. And I said, you have to invite all the tycoons of those 40 families two by two in the residence, I will pay the dinner. And in 40 dinners, I made the total Thai economy, which we did. And still today, I know all the guys. And of course, that gives you open doors. And that is incredible, this uh, kind of strategy. It only works if there are only 40 families in many countries. There yeah, are many more where the economy turns on. Anyway, so um, that was all nice uh, in uh, an interesting part. And that goes to our topic of today. 1997, a friend of mine said, hey, Ludo, uh, do you want to do me a favor? I'm looking for candidates to do an IPO on the London Stock Exchange. And you guys have a knowledge company. Do you want to do an, an IPO on the London Stock Exchange? No, I don't want to do an IPO. We don't need it. Why should we? Well, yeah, yeah, but, you know, he said, you have to do me a favor because my boss, he was a banker, yeah, investment banker. My boss, he always asked me to bring leads. And if you come there and I can say that you're a lead from me, then uh, I can tick the box and then he is happy. And I say, what's in it for me? And that is then, of course, being in Belgium. He promised me a good beer. And of course, I went there for a, an hour talk and chat with the, with the analysis. But it turned out to be a little bit more than just a chat. Because when I was sitting there and I was um, explaining the... Um, the, the analysis, there were three analysis sitting there and they were asking all the traditional questions, financial questions, return on investment, return on capital, whatever, all this kind of stuff, balance sheets and, and things. And suddenly, I don't know how it came, but I remembered my courses at university when um, they were teaching accounting and accounting at that time was based on manufacturing companies basic goods in a warehouse, machine parts, finished goods in a warehouse again, right? And costs out of the past, that were the drivers. And then I said, well, that's pretty strange because what I uh, am looking in here, if we talk about the knowledge economy, what we need to do is to look at the present and the future because the past has no value. Because if I had in the past some knowledge that I don't use today anymore, in classical accounting, it will be activated to costs that are still on the balance sheet and are there as a, as a value. And I always said, and what is then the big lie? Who is lying here? Because every manager that I ever met in my life always said to me, Ludo, my most important asset are my people. And how are they on the balance sheet? As costs. And I say, hey, you're talking about value. Where is it then? So anyway. I went into big discussions with those guys. And I said, listen, the, the measure systems that you guys have are wrong. You're going to measure companies in the wrong way. 
Yeah, and uh, it's like uh, having those little jigsaws for the little kids, uh, you know, where you have to put the, the pieces into a hole. Yeah, they were, tr the, the, the classical accounting is trying to put the wrong piece in the wrong hole and they always hammer on it until it's in there. So of course it's damaged. And then I thought by myself, how can they be so stupid, right? So I went back to our organization next day after we had the beer that evening, of course. Um, and, uh, and we, of course, we didn't do the IPO and I was proven right at that time. Remember what happened in, uh, in uh, 99, 2000, uh, that switch there when the dot-com bubble exploded because they were measured with the wrong tools. And um, I predicted that, but you know, we were too small in that uh, arena to do something. And then on a certain moment we said, yeah, but that's uh, a little bit strange, isn't it? Uh, that people are trying to uh, to to do that, and 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 it doesn't work. And they never measure the real intangible assets of the knowledge economy. Take on top of that what we see today in the business, in the world, the, the economical environment. That's it's, that eighty five percent of our business is a knowledge driven company, is knowledge economy, and we don't have the systems for that. We we see that our dear friends from accounting are still talking about the old fashioned way and. And I left that bankers on a certain moment by saying to the guys, listen, you guys think that I come from another planet when I challenge you so, but I'm afraid that you guys are still in Jurassic Park when you talk about the knowledge economy. And right I was. But of course you can say that and that's all nice, but that's not my idea of, of doing things. And, and I came back to the organization and say, hey guys, you know what? We are going to invent a way of measuring all the intangible assets of an organization. We are going to define that. We are going to define that in a monetary value and not in a concept and not saying my most important asset are my people. Nice to say that, but you should put a monetary value behind it. And if you cannot do that, it has no value. So in that sense, what I did is um, with, uh, with the guys there in our product development center um, is that we started to uh, come up with, yeah, we, we put a lot of energy in that to identify what we call the added value creating phenomena of organizations by which we were able based on econometrics to measure all the intangible assets of an organization and, and let me explain shortly what it is what's an added value creating phenomena remember i said in a knowledge economy it is only valid what you have today what you have in the future right what you had in the past it's not of, of importance anymore in a knowledge company remember if i would be making uh, CD-ROMs, yeah? the knowledge of making that today has no value anymore, right? Or uh, when I would uh, create fax machines, yeah, that knowledge on how to do that has no value anymore now. So what we did is an added value creating phenomena is something that you do to add, like the work it says, to add value to your organization now and in the future. That are the two elements that that counts. For example, if I recruit a person, I try to add value to my organization. I have a new customer. I have a new partner. I have a new IT system. I have a new structure. I have a new uh, whatever, right? Everything that you say, I have new or I'm going to have new in the future. That are that is what we call added value creating phenomena. So, and, yes, um, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with, with Mr. Ludo Pius, the founder and chairman of Ariopa, as our in-studio guest. We're talking about. Ariopa's uh, mission of intellectual capital. So what is Ariopa's mission, uh, Ludo? 
Well, based on that experience that I was just explaining um, and creating those those concepts of how to go and measure the intangible assets of an organization, we said that should be the basis of a new vision of uh, accounting and uh, measuring intangible assets in the monetary value. Because we were able, by those added value creating phenomena with all the variables and parameters, by defining present and future value of a company, tacit explicit. And tacit explicit is tacit is in the head of the people that runs away, doesn't belong to the company. Only when you capture it, store it, make it reusable, it belongs also to the company. Yeah. And on that moment, you can do that. You can say, I recruit the person, what's the value of that? And if you do all the variables and parameters and there is a financial element in it, your output is a financing figure. Now, the, at that time when we were doing that, we had no mission in that era because we just were saying, let's define how we are going to measure it. It only came later when we not only developed the measure system, but also the accounting system, which is a complete new accounting, which is consolidatable classical accounting and accepted by the ES standards, yeah, the international accounting standards. Um, now, on that moment, we had that. And then we said, well, now we can go to the customer and everybody wants to have it. No way, nobody wants to have a second accounting, right? So in that sense, what we said, no, we have to make the mission a little bit different. And what we then said is, we want to change the, the way of financial thinking on a worldwide basis. Because it doesn't work that we are just going to say to uh, an accountant that he's wrong and that he should do it differently. He will do it the old fashioned way, right? He's trained like that. Uh, is controlled like that, the auditors work like that. So we said we have to change the total world. And the mission today of Ariopa is, is a big one. Yeah? We are saying that we want to change the financial world thinking on the way you have to deal with intangible assets. And I think we are on a good way to do that. And yeah. so that is, <clears throat> that is a very large task. What are some of the key next steps that Ariopa is taking to influence the accounting standards on a global basis? Well, influencing the accounting standards is the easiest part because uh, uh, like I said already, uh, we changed uh, we, with our way of thinking added value creating phenomena. So it's not activating costs anymore. It has nothing to do with cost because we say intellectual capital is added value minus the costs. Yeah. So you can reduce cost and increase your value. That's also a way of doing. But that's not enough. I mean, um, if you say, for example, that um, uh, if you want to, to go for an added value creating phenomena analysis, for example, um, if you take the EIS 38, that is the international accounting standard number 38, that exists already, which is the worldwide standard for every accounting and auditor person. Right, um, it says that an intangible asset should be identifiable, controllable, and should have future economical benefit. Now, if you take an added value creating phenomena, which is explicit, that means you can measure it, you can identify it, yeah, and it can create future economical benefit in terms of creation of multiple money streams. And that is something that never nobody was thinking about. So in that sense, we are not so worried about, and we went to the ES board in London and we, in 2004 and in 2008, they accepted our way of thinking. So that is already okay. But the big problem is we can be right, yeah, but uh, the rest of the world 
can you you know that in Canada, for example, we were talking to some people yesterday in in, in Canada. There are two hundred and twenty thousand accountants and auditors. There are more than two hundred thousand students doing studies for becoming a CPA. Yeah. Now, how do you change all those people's way of thinking? Yeah, and that is an incredible big challenge. Now, what we did is we uh, went to, not by saying we are going to train those people because that will not work. You have to change the environment. You have to, to do the, the carrot and the stick. And who would be the, the guys who have to deal with that are investors. Investors in companies, they are key in this story. Uh, because if they say, if you want to use my money, I want to make sure that you guys as a fund manager are going to use my money correctly and that I can yield some profit on it and not that you go and gamble with my money because you don't understand what the intangibles are. Remember, 85% of our economy are knowledge companies. So that's what we do. And we reach out to, uh, uh, to that investment world uh, in, in with two ways where we are uh, using or changing actually the investment process of funds, especially funds who have the name innovation in their mission statement or active funds or things like that, that are the ones that we first approach. And I must say that that works pretty well, where we then do uh, in the, for the companies, high level estimations, innovation, due diligence, and if then we can see what's under the hood, and on that moment we can say that company is valid to invest in, if we then invest in, then we even put the knowledge manager inside who will follow the use of the money so that the value is really created, the multiple money streams are created. That's so, one way. So, that's, uh, I finish, Daryl, because that is, that's equity. With, uh, we also do it with debt, where we create uh, what we call an intellectual asset bank, which is a fund that gives a guarantee to commercial banks yeah, uh, on condition for a full 100% where we can manage or analyze this SME, yeah, present future value, yeah, tacit explicit, uh, that's a high level estimation innovation due diligence, and we put the knowledge manager inside, then we give the bank 100% guarantee. So that are ways of getting in, right? And that is for us, like you said, that is in our uh, objective from Ariopa, one of the major uh, elements that we are putting forward. So speaking about intellectual capital, there's a lot of discussion about intellectual capital. And I know you focus on four forms of intellectual capital, human capital, customer capital, alliance partner capital, and structural capital. Can you define yeah. that for our audience as to how yeah, you sure. utilize yeah, these, I, these four levels of capital? Yeah, that's a good question. Because if you start reading books about intellectual capital, you will lose your way in it. Yeah. Uh, every professor had his own vision uh, and they were always identifying more and more categories of kinds of capital, right? Um, and it, it went so abstract that, that, that I said that doesn't work. And for us, we said we only need to talk about intellectual capital elements that make sense for an entrepreneur in a company, that you, are, uh, that you can identify cultural capital or that you can define the intellectual capital of a city, yeah, who cares, right? Uh, but if you want to use it on the level of an organization, then there are no more than four categories. Um, but there is a, a special thing there. 
Of course, human capital, that's easy to understand. That is, That are the people. That's what I just mentioned. They're my most important asset are my people. Well, and that is then the, in the, the knowledge that they have, tacit, explicit, etc. But the other two, for example, if you work with customers in a knowledge company, each time you work with a new customer, that customer gives you new knowledge, new insights. It makes you evolve your product offerings that you have. So that is a transfer of intellectual capital from your customer to your organization and vice versa. The same thing you have with partners and uh, alliances that you work with. Uh, for example, if you have alliances in the value chain that you have downstream and upstream, well, working with those people creates more value for your organization. Now, all that can be tacit and explicit. And I mentioned it already. And most companies are, uh, more, are tacit in knowledge. That means everything is in the heads of the people. If somebody runs away, there goes the knowledge and your company is gone. Yeah, yesterday I was talking to a vice president from, from Oracle and he said, yeah, we bought co the, the, um, several companies always with the same owners each time again to keep the knowledge for us. And each time they made the same error, they said, we buy it and then we kick the owners out. Yeah, and they had the knowledge. And then he was there, well, that's a little bit crazy. So that is what, what the difference is between tacit and explicit. Now, in those four categories, uh, there is something special. There are not categories that you can put beside each other. They are in, interwoven. Yeah? And that makes it a little bit difficult to understand for some people. But for us, it, that model is only a way to identify the, the 77 added value creating phenomena that we identified. Yeah? But we are, it, is, it doesn't stop. Eh? There is an evolution in the market. For example, ESG. Yeah? Everybody talks about ESG standards. Now, that is about climate and about uh, the, the good behavior and, and everything like that. But what we are doing now is making a formula that if you use that ERG uh, standards that you from the United Nations, that should create value in your organization. So we are making an econometric formula from it again yeah, with the variables and parameters that can give you an extra dimension on the value that you have in your organization. Yeah? And yet you will see that in many cases that will not be too high and that it's more a hype than it is uh, a real added value element to, uh, to run the business. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you give us an example of how you've helped the company by helping through the intellectual capital understanding process? Yeah, well, let me give an, an example, uh, one that we did uh, very recently. Uh, uh, of course, with those added value created phenomena that we have in all those measure systems, it is a very important um, thing that, uh, that we need to, to, to put on the table, putting in all those measure systems, there are 920 of them, that's a very, very complex thing. So we came up with a concept that we called a high level estimation. And a high level estimation is something uh, that is based on the same formulas and criteria and parameters and variables but it are questions, it are not measures. And based on the questions that we ask, we have so much big data that we can compare those questions with the growth uh, phases of an organization, kind of organization structures that they have, um, kind of uh, industry in which they are. Yeah, And we can then make an, an estimation like the word it says from the present and future value tacit and explicit. Now that makes it easy because this is something that you can do in, uh, in a week time, yeah? it's interviewing, collecting data, collecting documents, and there we go, and we can make a report. 
Now, uh, recently we had a company who was reaching out to us and saying, voila, we are an, uh, a biotech company and we want to go for a joint venture with an American PPP uh, organization. But we have a, a series of patents and a patent is in our definition, the most tangible of the intangibles. But if you really look into the total concept of intellectual capital, uh, if intellectual capital of your organization is 100, then a patent is maybe not even 1% of that. Yeah. So a lot of companies, they think that the patent is the most important. Now, they had also a series of patents. So they are going to set up a joint venture in the beginning with that American uh, organization. And they have to put in, in the joint venture, the, the, the levels of shares yeah? and, and who contributes most of it, right? So they asked us to do an high-level estimation yeah, where we could identify exactly where their assets are and we can transfer them into, an, um, uh, into an, uh, a value, right? a financial value. Now, on that moment, if you go and sit together with uh, um, uh, the other party, you can then put on the table, look, we have here a value of 120 million. Yeah? And you guys have how much and they don't have it yet. So that means that on that moment, we can go and do it also. And based on those two inputs, we can have a fair split of shares within a joint venture. That's an, an example that we had last week. Yeah. Well, Ludo, we're going to have to have you come back on the program because there's so much more to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Ludo Pius, the founder and chairman of Ariopa, and we're talking about intellectual capital. Um, so we're going to have to have you come back, but I want to thank you for coming on the program. It's a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up this week on Leadership with Darrell W. Gunter on WSOU 89.5 FM. Seton Hall University streaming on the net. Remember, we want you to have a great weekend, but remember leadership begins with you. WSOU 89.5 FM.